you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we work our way through the book of Matthew we came to chapter 10 the last time and of course this was the sending out of the disciples the 12 disciples that Jesus had chosen he sent them out (coughs) he gave them their call basically and it was quite an astonishing call when you think about it these 12 relatively uneducated Galilean guys one of them was a a Judean that was Judas he was the only one that didn't come from Galilee but he sent them out with this task and and, and quite glibly Jesus just says to them I want you to go I want you to proclaim the kingdom of heaven amongst the Jews and I want you to heal the sick and cleanse the leper and raise the dead just as if it was something that happened in everyday life and then these disciples elated at the prospect of being able to do all these things in the name of Jesus are then told the cost that the cost of being a disciple and going out there and doing that would be that they would be persecuted that they would have to stand before the civil authorities and before the religious authorities that they might even be given their 39 stripes in the synagogues beaten in the synagogues because they were proclaiming the kingdom of heaven they were told that the possibility is that because you have departed from what people consider to be the norm that they would be hated by their family their family would turn against them and Jesus said something at the end of chapter 10 that I suppose would put in some measure a bit of fear into the disciples he said you must pick up your cross on a daily basis and follow me Now, Jesus at this point in time hadn't obviously been crucified. But crucifixion was a normal part of life in Judea. The Romans didn't actually invent it, but they perfected it. The Persians invented uh, crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. And really at the end of the day, to tell someone to pick up their cross was basically to put a death sentence on them. So when Jesus was saying to them, pick up your cross and follow me, he was basically saying to them in the physical sense that that this would be an end to you. This would be your life at an end. And of course he didn't mean it in the physical, but he meant it in the spiritual. That you must lose your life to gain your life. To gain a life in Christ, we must see that life crucified with him on Calvary's cross. And now at the start of chapter 11, Jesus has given these disciples the call. He has has made known to them quite honestly and openly what the cost of it will be. And at chapter 11, he goes out on his own. He sent the disciples out to various towns and villages. We don't know how long this process took, but possibly a couple of months. But Jesus goes out on his own and it says in chapter 11 at verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And we presume that Jesus and the disciples had made some plan as to which towns they would go to. It would be a bit crazy for them all to turn up in the one town at the one time. Uh, Not really a a very well organised plan. So I'm presuming that Jesus went to different towns than the two disciples would, would go to. Because Jesus sent them out in twos. There would be half a dozen pairs going out and Jesus out on his own. And that's an interesting thing that here was Jesus telling them their call, telling them the cost. Hello? 
two fresh suppers and a bottle of Edinburgh. <laughs> so they weren't going to the same towns, but Jesus trusted the disciples to do the work they had given them to do. And that's what I want to tell you this morning, and I suppose in some measure for John as well. Jesus trusts you to do the work that he's given you to do. He's made a call in your life. And every time he puts somebody in front of you, that's the work that you have to do. What should we do to do the will of God? What should we, what should we actually do? People have come to me many times and say, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. What's the will of God for my life? And the place I always start is, well, do you pray every day? Is it the will of God that you should pray every day? That you should be constantly in prayer? Do you read your Bible every day? Is it the will of God that you should read your Bible every day? If you start with these things, if you allow God to trust you in the small things, then he'll give you the big things to do. These are the places that we should be. Is it in the will of God that you should come to fellowship meetings as often as you can manage? Yes, it is. Fellowship's a very important part of your Christian life. I've said this before and I go back again to my three-legged stool. And I'll explain it to you again because when I was a teacher in Les Mahiga High School I taught technical and one of them was the, the woodwork. And you could usually tell fairly early on with some of the boys and girls as to what they were capable of and what they weren't capable of. The, the good guys and the good girls were given, if it was, if it was chairs we were making, then they were given a four-legged chair or a four-legged table to make because, believe it or not, they were actually quite difficult to make. To get the legs to stand straight and square are actually quite difficult. And the ones who weren't too bright, they got the three-legged stool to make. You get in the picture here? The three-legged stool, you make a three-legged stool and I'll guarantee you that it'll never wobble. The legs might be longer or shorter than each other. It might be a, slow, a slant, sorry, but it never wobbles. And so that's the way we should be. We should be in that, with that three-legged stool. That's our Christian walk. One leg is fellowship, one leg is prayer, and one leg is reading the Word or studying the Word. That's the three things that will keep you strong in your Christian walk. Honouring Christ in all of these things is, is indeed the way forward. If you lose one of them, and we all know people that have lost legs off their stools at one time or another, it's very difficult sitting in a two-legged stool. And by the time you get down to a one-legged stool, I'm afraid you've got a big problem. You usually end up in the bones of your backside. So we should be ready. Jesus has trusted us. He's given the call in our life. He's told us that there will be persecution will come. And yet we as a a fellowship here. We don't really know what persecution is and, and neither in some measure are we ever likely to. We're never likely to suffer the, the consequences of somebody breaking into your house in the middle of the night and dragging out the male members of your family and cutting their heads off just because they're Christians or because they're not Muslims or they're not Hindus or whatever. So these disciples were trusted and God trusts you to do his work. He will give you as much work to do as you want to do. He will never force you into a situation where you have to do what God wants you to do. It's a choice. You have the free choice in the matter. You have to make the decision. And so out they went. 
These twelve disciples and Jesus in various parts of the Galilee preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They weren't out there to browbeat people and say this, that and the next thing. They were there to say to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look up, reach out, it's here. The Messiah has come. It says in verse 2, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now John was in prison because... He, he, he was uh, he upset Herod Antipas, who was the the tetrarch, the ruler over the Galilee. When Herod died, when Herod the Great died, and and, and I always have to remember to tell you this that Herod was the surname of the people. They always put a surname first, so you've got Herod the Great and Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa, and you've got an awful lot of Herods that can get mixed up. Herod Antipas. Was a, was a ruler of, of a quarter of Herod the Great's kingdom, and his quarter included the Galilee. But he was a bit of a womanizer. And he ended up visiting his brother in Rome. They were very, the, the family of Herod were very, very close to the Roman Empire. And so Herod Antipas had gone to visit his brother who was living in Rome. And while he was in Rome, he seduced his brother's wife to put her. And then, after having seduced his brother's wife, he went home, back to Jerusalem, or back to Galilee, sorry. And then he dismissed his own wife, and married his sister-in-law, brought her in for Rome. But like her own royal family in some measure, isn't it? But John had heavily rebuked him for it. John had stood in public and said, this is not right, you shouldn't be married to your brother's wife you have done this wrongly this is, this is not right and so at the end of the day Herodotus who was the woman's name she ended up convincing Herod Antipas to put John in prison and he was put in prison in Macarius which was a fortress down by the Dead Sea so John was in prison and he was obviously allowed visitors otherwise these disciples wouldn't have come and asked him uh, Jesus, uh, John wants to know if you're the one or should we expect someone else I think John was probably asking this question because like many other Jews at the time he felt that maybe the ministry of Jesus wasn't really quite what they were looking for the Jews generally were looking for this great political messiah. This, as I've said before, the guy in the white horse who was going to rid the land of the Romans and, and, and free the people up. And here was Jesus who came in humility and came in love and came in grace and came just to the ordinary people to heal the sick, to let the blind see and the deaf hear, to cleanse the leper. There was a thought at that time amongst the Jews and many of the rabbis can argue about it that Moses spoke about the one that would come after him that God would send another prophet and some thought that that referred to the Messiah and others thought that it didn't so John was probably of the school he wasn't sure was this coming one that Moses spoke about the same one as the Messiah or was it something different should we expect somebody else and John was probably maybe, I don't know, a bit miffed. It's hard to understand because I don't know how I would feel in John's position. Here he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and standing in the Jordan River and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And then he ends up in jail. If I was looking for a Messiah, I was looking for a Messiah that was going to come and bust me out of jail. And maybe John was wondering, are you the one should I expect or is somebody going to come and get me out of here? And Jesus replied at verse 4, this is to the couple of disciples of John that came to him. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me or is offended on account of me, some translations put it. So Jesus' answer in some measure was rhetorical to the, the guys, you know, what you see is what you get. Go and tell John what you've seen. That the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. And the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. These were all messianic signs, messianic prophecies for the Old Testament. That when the Messiah came, when the coming one came, when the chosen one came, the deaf would hear and the blind would see and the lame would walk. And the leper would be cleansed and, that was, and the dead would be raised. All the messianic signs from the Old Testament. You know, sometimes today we, we look upon miracles as being a sort of test of our faith rather than, a, rather than a builder of our faith. We should expect God to work in the miraculous and not be sitting back hoping that he's going to work in the miraculous and, and suddenly having this burst of faith. You know, we really need to have this burst of faith so that we can get a miracle. God will perform miracles when and how he sees fit. And not before and not after. God's timing is perfect. But the timing may be perfect because God has asked you and me to particularly pray for something or particularly lay hands on somebody that they might receive that miracle from God. He wants to use us. He doesn't need to use us. But he wants to use us. He wants us to be part of his salvation's plan. But at the end of the day, when we go through those gates of heaven, we can hear those words echoing in our ears, Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. It says at the end of this that the good news is proclaimed to the poor, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Opposition was rising to Jesus. At this point in time. We see that in the earlier chapters where they called him a son of Satan. And they called him all sorts of names. They called him illegitimate. And the words they used for that wouldn't have been illegitimate. And uh, people were offended. People were offended and people were stumbling because they, they were looking for this Messiah. Who was going to be the great political leader. And in some measure the Jews today are still looking for this Messiah who's going to be some great political leader. What they fail to realise is that he's already come, but he's coming again. And so, it's the same as today. People are offended by the gospel. People are offended when you start to tell them about Jesus, when you start to tell them that, that they're sinners, and that they need a saviour, and that Christ died for their sin. I don't know whether any of you saw the post that I got for George, and I put it up on Facebook, a Church of Scotland minister in Edinburgh who is now actually saying, is now proclaiming that Jesus didn't die for your sin. He didn't have to die for your sin. And various other bits and pieces that uh, were totally unbiblical and totally heretical. And it's, uh, 
If you want to listen to it, it's there. If you if you look up Mayfield Spring, uh, Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church in Edinburgh and listen to this uh, sermon called Inner Transformation, uh, it, it, it is it is it's just beyond imagination what this guy is saying. And this is because we're in the times when there's going to be another gospel. And this is the other gospel. <clears throat> that you don't need a saviour, that you can change yourself, that things can happen for you without, uh, without the need of confessing your sin, etc. And so that things were no different in, in Jesus' time. They didn't accept Jesus either because they didn't think he was the Messiah. They were looking for something else. They were offended by this. So as John's disciples at verse 7 were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. So John the Baptist, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. <clears throat> this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So Jesus explains, basically, John the Baptist's ministry. And you know, sometimes when we get a bit down about what we're doing for the Lord, and, and maybe what I'm doing is not that important, we think to ourselves. John the Baptist was basically, his ministry lasted six months. Nobody, he never did any miracles. And at the end of six months he gets head chopped off. So, there's a, there's a ministry up for you if you're looking for it. You know, there's, they're look, looking for a replacement for John the Baptist. <laughs> but here he was, John the Baptist. A reed blown in the wind. Not just a prophet, but the herald of the Messiah. He was the last Old Testament prophet. Up until that point in time that the prophecies had been given that the Messiah would come, John was the only one to be able to stand up and say the Messiah is here, now, amongst you. And what a privilege it was for him. Not just a prophet, but a herald. Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, if you want to read those, you'll find the, the prophecies concerning John the Baptist. So John, there's a few things I've written down here about John out of this passage. John was steady. He was not shaken like a reed in the wind. He was, he was solid. He knew what his ministry was and he knew how to accomplish it. And he was not afraid to stand up and say, this is wrong or this is right. He was not to be shaken. John was sober and serious. He was not in love with the luxuries of the world. He shunned the luxuries of the world because he felt that the kingdom of heaven was far more important than those were. John was a servant, a prophet of God. John was sent by God as a herald of Jesus Christ. John was special. He was the greatest under the old covenant. That's what Jesus says about him here. Nobody ever in the old 
Testament and the Old Covenant has ever been greater than John. And yet John was second to even the least under the New Covenant. The least person who stands in the Gospel stands in higher ground than the greatest under the law. That's what Jesus was saying. There is such a, a jump between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is, it is not a jump that men can take in their own as this Church of Scotland minister would tell you. Your sins have to be forgiven. Your sins have to be atoned for. The blood was shed in Calvary's cross that our sins might be atoned for. And that Jesus was raised to a new life that we might be raised to a new life in him. We talk about Elijah. He talks about Elijah. If you would accept it, John comes in the spirit of Elijah. There's going to be three appearances of Elijah. We've got John here coming in the spirit of Elijah. We've got Elijah appearing in the Mount of Transfiguration along with Moses and Jesus. And then we're going to have Elijah again appearing in the end times, in the tribulation times, as one of the two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem as he proclaims again the coming or the second coming of the Messiah. There's a word here that says that the kingdom of heaven is being taken by violence. It's not violence in the sense that somebody's going to batter you with a hammer, although that might be the case at some point in time. But the violence that they're talking about here, the Greek word there really means to be very passionate about it. Passionate to the point of being violent, if you know what I mean. You know, they're so, so up for it that you could crush a grape, you know. Just. But what does real passion mean? John had that passion about him. He stood up to Herod Agrippa. He stood up to the Pharisees. He said to them, you know, you brood of vipers, what are you out here looking for? You know, you, if you come to repent of your sins or if you just come to be nosy. He was not a man pleaser. I would imagine John could be quite an abrasive character. You know, especially if, uh, if he didn't agree with what you were doing or how you were doing it. He was not a man pleaser. You know, and often I think about it, John's out there and giving it everything for the kingdom of heaven and people are coming and being baptised in the Jordan and he's pointing to Jesus and saying, this is your true salvation. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know, I was thinking about it this week and and it, it challenged me. If we're not seeing people being saved, maybe it's because we're not being passionate enough. Maybe that passion's not there. Maybe we'll, we, need to, we need to get that stirring back in us again. That, that thing that was there. I mean, the passion's still in me, but it's matured. And maybe I need to go back to the passion that I had when I was first saved. That I had a lot of grace about me. I just told people. And uh, maybe that's not the right way either. But, you know, I'm encouraging you this morning. When you're talking to people about Jesus, use your testimony. Let it be a passion in you. This is what Jesus has done for me. John the Baptist would stand and tell them the same thing. I've come here not in my own accord, says John. I've come here to tell you that the Messiah is coming and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And maybe that's the way we should be with people. Maybe we need to be that bit more passionate in it. 
And then Jesus talks about it because he talks about it and the way people have received John the Baptist and the way they have received Jesus. And, and, and he goes on here in chapter 11 to tell us that at verse 15, 16. Sorry. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a ditch for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by our deeds. When people are looking for an excuse not to accept Jesus, they'll find it. It's easy. When people are looking for an excuse not to read their Bible or not to pray or not to come to fellowship meetings, they'll find it. Excuses are ten a penny. We can always find an excuse for not doing what we feel we should be doing. And it doesn't matter what we do for people. That's what Jesus is saying here about John the Baptist. He says, you know, we played the flute for you and didn't dance. In other words, Jesus came with joy in his heart and the people didn't dance. John came with that kind of seriousness. They played a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. So you weren't happy with John and you weren't happy with Jesus. What will you be happy with? And in some measure, you know, when we look out amongst us, what will people be happy with? If they're looking for an excuse not to accept Jesus or not to listen, then they'll find one. John came in austerity and, 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 and hum humility and they rejected him. And Jesus came with joy and they called him a drunkard. And they called him a, a wine-bibber and all sorts of names. Many people won't want Jesus or don't want Jesus no matter what's on offer. It doesn't matter what you tell them. It doesn't matter whether you've shared your testimony with them a million times. They'll say to you, well that's fine. It's alright for you, but it's not for me. And I'm going to give you a lesson in evangelism this morning. When when they say that to you, my question always is, so you don't want Jesus? You don't believe in Jesus? No, I don't. Then what do you believe? Tell me what you do believe so that I can get a handle as to where you're coming from. You know where I'm coming from. And Jesus said the same thing to these people. Tell me, what is it you believe? What is it you're looking for? And many people today, if you ask them that, they don't know what they believe. They just know that they don't want Jesus. And that's a spiritual thing. That's where we have to take it to prayer. That's only God can answer that. And he goes on to talk about the the towns that he's ministered in and the places that he's ministered in. And he said in verse 20, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So in some measure Jesus is taking a leaf out of John's book here. This is pretty strident stuff. And it's not that these towns, Capernaum and 
Chorazim and Bethsaida were actively out to kill Jesus or destroy his ministry. They were just totally apathetic towards him. Yes, they were quite happy to see the miracles being done. But did they want to repent of their sins and be baptised? Did they want to find a new life in him? Did they want the kingdom of heaven living in them? No thanks, we can do without that bit. Chorazin was the city that stands above the Sea of Galilee on the northern end. It's above Capernaum. And that was the city about which Jesus spoke about. A city stands on a hill. Cannot be hidden. That was Chorazin. You would stand, at night you could stand in Capernaum and look up the hill and you would see the lights of Chorazin on the top of the hill. And that was what he was portraying to the people. Can a city, can a, a city stand on a hill be hidden? And that was what he was talking about as Christians. Can those who have the light of life in them be hidden? We have to let that light out. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. We don't know all the miracles. We don't know the wonders that Jesus did. But the last verse... And John's gospel sums it up for me. He says that if everything that Jesus did was written down, there would not be enough books in the world to hold them. And you know, these are the unwritten things, the things that happened in Chorazim and Bethsaida and Capernaum. But the unwritten things as well are you people. Those of you who know Christ as your saviour, your personal saviour, you are a living testimony that's never been written down. And so if it's never been written down, then use your voice. Go out there and tell people that there is another way. That unrecorded testimony of your life and my life. In verse 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus, on many occasions, talked about little children. And intellectually, compared to God, we are little children. We are the sort of 18-month-old compared to the mature adult that God is. There just isn't a comparison. It's beyond comparison. Unless you can become as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you've got that childlike faith. And it's not childish faith. Childishness is stamping your feet and throwing your toys at the pram. Childlike is that inquisitiveness, that thing that says, I like what I hear, tell me more. A child who will sit at your feet and ask you questions about any subject. We should be the ones who are sitting at the feet of Jesus. The faith of a child. Can we be that child? Can we develop that humility? Can we allow the Holy Spirit to put that humility in us? We can only do that if you're born again. You can't be a child again spiritually until you're born again. All things have been committed to me by my Father at verse 27. No one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus has revealed God the Father to you and I, those of us who know Him. The Father and Son are one. The Father draws men to the Son. The Son reveals the Fathers to men and both of them work through the Holy Spirit. A perfect triune God who is, and I openly admit it, a total mystery. An absolute mystery. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. An absolute mystery. 
No one can come to the Father except through the Son. And no one can know the Father no one can know the Son except through the Father. It's that unless the Father draws him, it's, it's, a, it's almost a chicken and egg situation. But it's a wondrous thing, a mystery beyond mysteries. And then Jesus says at the end here, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Having seen all these people that he's preaching to in these towns, and they're all under the cosh, they've all got financial problems, they've all got health problems, they've all got all sorts of problems with the Romans. And he says to them, if you're weary or laboured and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. You know, weariness or labour sometimes comes from our self-imposed troubles. We pile troubles upon ourselves when we don't need to. And we get down about it. And the sort of burdens, we're burdened by what the world and other people put on us. Other people will give us a hard time. And it puts a burden on us. And Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened and I'll give you rest. My yoke is light. My burden is light. Come to me all you who are weary. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gentle and humble. That's what we need to learn from Jesus. Gentle and humble. Humble of soul and humble of heart. And what does it bring? It brings rest. When we can put that burden back on Jesus, when we know that that burden, we don't have to carry it alone. He took the burden of sin from us. Now he wants to take the burden of worry and anxiety from us as well. And you know, just when I was thinking about it, and you all know where I come from in these things, but thinking about it this week as I was studying this, isn't that what we all desire? Just a quietness. A quietness in our soul. A, 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 a reassurance that everything's going to be alright. That somebody's just going to come along. And, and it's nice when a friend sometimes comes along and says, you know, all oh, this problem you're going to go through, it'll come to an end. You'll be alright. We'll stand beside you. We'll see you through. And that's what Jesus is offering. I'm going to be your friend, says Jesus. Just lay your burdens down. And it's hard among an unbelieving generation. This generation that Jesus was in amongst was an unbelieving generation. And we again have found ourselves in an unbelieving generation. But all he wants you to do is just go out there. Use your testimony as a tool to bring people into the kingdom you can preach all day but when you start to talk personally to people about what God has done for you about what your life was and now is then you start to see the difference people begin to accept you you know in the time of Jesus when a young ox was going to be put to work and we've talked a lot about doing work here this morning when a young ox was going to be put to work, the big wooden yokes that they used to put on the oxen, they would take a big mature bull ox and put it in the yoke, and they would take the young one and yoke it with it. 
But the young one never actually carried any of the load. The big bull carried all the load. But the young one was was moved by the older one in the ways that it should go and in how to behave and in how to react. But it never actually experienced the load because the older bull took the load. But it was trained because one day it would be its turn to stand in the place where the load had to be taken and they had to teach the younger ones and disciple the younger ones to do the work. And you can see where I'm getting at here. Us as older Christians need to take the younger Christians and lead them gently in the way that they should go. And we should be able to bear the load. Why? Because we've been on the road longer with the Lord. But even at times, we need that reassurance from Jesus that our load is light and he will take it for us. And so, this morning as we look at this, as Jesus goes out to to teach and to preach the kingdom of God I'm putting that forward to you this morning don't be frightened of it don't be afraid yes you've been called by what God has called you to do the things that God has put in your life the people that he's put in front of your face to proclaim the gospel to them don't be frightened if they get bad tempered with you be strident, be strong be gentle, be humble be Christ like let's pray Father, we just thank you and praise you for this good day. We thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And we pray that you would, Lord, just encourage us and enable us, Lord, only through your Holy Spirit, Lord, only through that new birth that you have put in us, Father, only through the forgiveness of sin and the, and the resurrection to new life can we be raised to that place, that place, Lord, where we can serve you. Lord, just be with us, encourage us. Help us to go from here, Lord, with a better idea and a deeper idea as to who you are than we were when we come in, Lord. So I just pray, Lord, that you'll be with us in all that we do this day. To use all that you've given us, Lord, to your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.